Hey everyone, welcome to the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. Brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. All right, let's start. Okay, so everyone, this is going to be a different episode for you. I'm really excited. We are at the Warrior Angel Foundation 4x4x48 uh, event this weekend, and we're going to be running... 48 miles how many is it 48 miles is that what it ends up being so yeah. in canadian i think that's 72 or 76 kilometers who knows what am i even saying either way it's gonna hurt but i'm excited because on this uh, amazing journey at getting this chance to be down here in texas i also got to meet some really cool people and totally unassumingly you and i just started running together and then I just felt like I needed to, to converse with you. And we started chatting. And then I realized we did our first four miles and a podcast at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That was pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm glad you were willing to come on the show because, dude. My pleasure. You got a wild story. Like, not just wild, but legitimately insane. Because I have never... I've heard people tell me stories about deployment. I've heard people tell me uh, things about their missions and their ops, but I've I have truly never heard anything l- l- the likes of you. So, can you tell everyone what you did in the military, who you are, and kind of how we had that conversation? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was uh, a U.S. Navy F-18 pilot. Uh, I flew F-A-18 Echo Super Hornets. Um, I was. Uh, I was fairly new uh, in my squadron. I had I'd gone through flight school. I'd winged. I had uh, gone through the F-18 training uh, and graduated that. And I had arrived at my first fleet squadron, uh, VFA-143, the Pukin Dogs. Uh, and we were based out at NAS Oceana in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I had been there about eight months, uh, long enough to not be the new new guy, but like still figuring stuff out for sure. Um, Still getting razzed for no reason. Oh, yeah, constantly. <laughs> I don't think that goes away, uh, but it was getting better, you know. They had they had new guys, newer guys to pick on, so, you know, things. I was starting to get the hang of things, I felt. Uh, a lot to learn still, but uh, still very new. Uh, and there's, there's a, you know, a ridiculous amount of information to learn that takes people years to, to really, really get a handle on it. But, uh, yeah, we were, we were going out. It, it was a pretty regular day we were operating out of nas oceana so off the shore rather than off a aircraft carrier that day um so things were things were looking like a pretty kind of fun challenging day but uh we're our main mission that day was just to go out and to check a ars refueling pod which is an aerial refueling pod that goes on the bottom of an f-18 it had just come out of maintenance 
And so we were going to go up and do some plugs on it. So uh, another J.O. in my squadron, uh, Hipster, uh, he was going to fly the tanker jet with the tank on it that we're going to check out. And then uh, my flight lead was my skipper. And then myself, we were going to fly our jets and go out and uh, and put out our fuel probes and check this thing. And, and uh, so we took off. Everything's going great. Uh, got some fuel out of it. Everything was running smooth. The ARS fuel had uh, checked out. And so we had extra gas and some time. And when we get a little extra gas and time, something that... I absolutely love doing, and we were fortunate to get to do that day, was to go out and do air combat maneuvering, uh, or BFM, basic fighter maneuvering, which is basically uh, dogfighting. So, like, being within a few miles of another jet and then trying to shoot each other down, for pretend in this case, um, it's, uh, you know, it's something that takes a lot of practice. There's a lot going on. You're operating weapon systems and defensive systems, and you're trying to keep sight of the other guy, and you're, you know, max performing this jet in a way that, puts a lot of g-force on your body and you're craning your neck around with a lot of load on it and it's really fun uh but it takes a lot of practice to get good at and uh so skipper was in his jet i was in mine and we set off and uh started doing some sets of this and uh yeah basically it went as expected the skipper kicked my ass uh, repeatedly uh i was kind of working on practicing going nose low and and, and taking uh taking a fight from coming from the bottom up, uh, if that makes any sense, from being lower than the other guy uh, throughout the fight, uh, throughout the, the day. Uh, so we basically had done this a bunch, uh, and we were just about out of gas when you're performing the jet like that. You know, you don't get a whole lot of time in max afterburner in the jet before you're out of gas. So uh, we were kind of getting out of fuel, out of time. Uh, we set up for one last set, and... Uh, I'm kind of busy messing with this. I had just gained my qualification with the Jehemix helmet, which is kind of this cool space helmet that, you know, looks like something out of Star Wars or something. Everywhere you look with the helmet, it trains your uh, weapon systems and your radar and things like that. Uh, and so really cool, but just like any new piece of gear, you got to get out and practice it before you really get comfortable with it. So... Did you use uh, that often? Because if that was a new issue, I mean, how often do you use it on land with G... Um, so, so you do, um, you, there is a syllabus, but it's pretty brief. Um, it, it's only a few flights and you, and you start with just some basic flights where you just go out and kind of look around with it and, uh, and, uh, look around with it and learn the basic functionality and, and you do, uh, a couple different flights to get used to it. And so this was my first time after getting quad. So I had only had really a few flights with it. Um, but you know, that's, that's how we learn stuff in the Navy. Like you just go out and you got to do it and, uh, and, and, you know, ratchet up the intensity and, and try it out and figure it out. And so, uh, we started, uh, on this last set, uh, I pitched into the fight and, uh, we were up at 12,500 feet when we merged, which is kind of when we cross each other's paths. Uh, I'm kind of busy, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of focused on using this helmet system and, and operating the controls for it on the HOTAS, like all the thumb buttons and hand buttons that are on the, the joystick or the, the throttle and, and, and the uh, stick of the aircraft. And so I'm kind of focused on that. didn't realize how fast I had gotten coming to the merge. And, and basically, I, I just made a split-second decision and made a mistake, and I started maneuvering the jet nose low. Uh, at a higher airspeed than I should have gone nose low. And so I'm starting this maneuver. We're up at 12,500 feet. So we're, we're over two miles up in the sky. So it doesn't really feel like you're close to the earth. But at that speed, 
very quickly uh, at that speed I started approaching the ground and uh, kind of it was exacerbated uh, you know by this the system in the jet that uh, started to limit the G to prevent an overstress on it uh, thinking that there were bombs on the wings uh, long story short it was it was kind of like going around a sharp corner in a sports car and uh, having the steering wheel kick back halfway so I went back I went from pulling you know towards the max into what the jet could do uh, in my head weighing and helmet feeling like 200 pounds or so on my head you know that heavy force of the G the harder you turn the jet the more G force you pull um, and that eased up to like four G's. So you can feel that on your body. It's like, uh, you know, going around that sharp corner and then all of a sudden the turn performance is just gone. And this is in the vertical. So I'm diving at the ocean. Uh, and this all happens in a few seconds. I realize something's not good. Uh, the stick is in my lap. It's not turning the way I'm trying to make it turn. I pulled the throttle, the idle and put out the speed brake to try to slow down. And, uh, at that point, the ground rush was coming up at me and at 2000 feet, uh, 51 degrees nose low. So pointed very steeply at the ocean, uh, two seconds before the jet impacted the water, I pulled the ejection handle and, uh, a normal ejection is, is not good for anybody. Um, people end up, uh, compressing their spine and having issues with that. I was way outside of what would be considered, a. Uh, you know, the ejection envelope, uh, I think, I can't remember exactly, but something like below 200 knots is ideal if you have to eject is to slow down. Obviously, this situation wasn't going to allow for that, and it was either get out or go into the ocean with the jet. How often Uh, does somebody actually have to eject from a jet? Like, how frequently does that happen? Because I'm trying to, I want listeners to understand how rare that can be and how dangerous it is and why they so frequently try not to do that. Um. It's it's fairly rare. In the time that I had been in the squadron, uh, just our air wing had had another ejection. Um, so it, it does happen in the course of a year. You'll you'll hear of other guys, oftentimes guys you know, doing it. Um, so it does it does happen. Um, but uh, it's but, not yeah. it's not ideal. You don't want to have to. Obviously no, obviously it's it's the last resort. This is you know this is this is when everything else isn't. You working know, th- things didn't work out the way they're supposed to and right. again this is this is all induced by you know a split second decision i made that was a mistake you know uh that was really what caused it so uh anyways it was last ditch thing uh i pulled the ejection handle and coming out of the jet the uh the indicated airspeed on the jet was 604 knots uh that was 0.95 indicated mock so basically 95 percent of the speed of sound at 2,000 feet uh, above the ocean uh, and that equates to about 695 miles per hour. So, uh, you know, stick your arm out of a car window going like 70 on the highway uh, and the way that rips your arm back pretty strong, well, that parasitic drag that's acting on you is exponentially stronger. So 100 times stronger at 700 miles per hour than it would be at 70. So uh, I basically hit the sound barrier with my body uh, and... Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, not it was, funny, but oh my no, god! No, no. Uh, <laughs> Who can uh, say that? <laughs> yeah, hopefully not many people yeah. uh, have to do that. Uh, but I came out and impacting that, you know, is like getting hit by an explosion. Uh, basically, uh, it, it ripped that Jehemix helmet off my head. Uh, my head got bashed. I got a, a, a traumatic brain injury. Uh, I broke my neck 
Uh, I broke from my arms flailing around into that force. Uh, my my left shoulder was broken, the scapula. Uh, both my upper arms, uh, the humerus, was broken in both arms. My right humerus ripped through uh, my brachial artery in my right arm, which is uh, a lot of blood going through there. Uh, and then my left forearm basically smashed the radius and ulna into pieces. Uh, and then my legs, the steel toe, they think because my legs were flailing so violently with the steel toe boots on them, uh, they kind of like smashed each other uh, apart. Oh, and so my tib fib and both my lower legs were just shattered to pieces, uh, like chunks of my bone had come out. So I had two open fractures in my lower legs and then the brachial artery ripped open and a bunch of nerve damage and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, but the, luckily the parachute worked. It opened and slowed me on impact with the water enough so I didn't die. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I went into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this is in January uh, and the nearby buoy temp was 37 degrees Fahrenheit for the water temperature. And... We were wearing dry suits, but I had ejected at such a high speed that it had shredded open my dry suit. So the cuffs on the arms and the neck had all just ripped right open. Uh, and so that parachute went into the water. I went into the water, and water at that temperature, you know, feels like needles on your skin. It's so cold. Uh, and so my dry suit started filling up with it, turning my body into a sea anchor. anchor. And then the... Um, parachute which had just saved my life uh sunk underwater and we have uh on our parachute risers where our harness connects to the parachute there are these uh charges called the seawars and basically it's a saltwater activated explosive and when it detects salt water it activates the charge and this is because it's so common to have upper body injuries uh in high speed ejections that you're often not able to reach up and disconnect your parachute which was definitely the case for me um for whatever reason, one of the sewers fired, and uh, it it didn't disconnect, and the other one didn't even fire. Uh, so my parachute that just saved me was underwater now and filling with the current of the ocean and pulling me under. And so now, uh, I don't know if, if, if you've ever been held under by, like, a big wave surfing. I know you mentioned that you had uh it was i wasn't uh, even i wasn't even surfing that's the embarrassing part i was i was i walked out on a pier to take a photo because i thought the photo would be cool we were in cuba it was on pre-deployment we were with like our whole unit and i thought it'd be a good idea and then this wave came and it took me off of the pier and pulled me out and tossed me and i looked it was one of the scarier experiences of my life i'll be honest with you because i I couldn't get up. I couldn't breathe. And I kind of had this realization, like, if it doesn't spit me back up, this is just what it is. Because there's nothing you can do. No. It's, ocean is pretty powerful. <laughs> yeah, she's terrifying. Uh, Legitimately. Uh, so, yeah, now I'm basically getting pulled under and held under repeatedly. Um, just bobbing underwater again and again and again. And and uh, kind of funny, right before the flight, uh, one of my buddies in the squadron uh uh, Fisty, uh, the beef Wade, a man so big he had to have three call signs, has three call signs. Uh, just a, an awesome, larger than life personality. He, to make, you know, like we try to make light of things in the squadron because you're often under a lot of stress and things can be shitty sometimes. Uh, to lighten it up, uh, we started doing a shark tracker, which <laughs> was using, uh, uh, I think it was National Geographic or somebody had a, uh, like a GPS tracker thing. You could get an app on your phone and you could see where all these big tagged sharks were. And right where I was flying that day uh, was, I think Mary Lee was her name. 
Uh, oh, she's like no. a sixteen or six thousand pound, sixteen foot white shark. Uh, and, and right before I would fly, Tom's like, Hey man, don't eject today. Uh, Mary Lee is like right under the working area you're going to be in. So now, now I'm in the water bleeding out and now there's, I know there's a big ass okay. white shark. <laughs> right I was where going, <laughs> okay. So the part of me that's super insensitive, the part of me that so many people know would be when we were running and you were telling me this story, the first question that came to mind was, man but the sharks were in the water I, and I wouldn't I didn't want to say anything but that's hilarious I have a thing with sharks so this is why it's uh so yeah Mary Lee's hanging out uh and luckily uh, I guess I wasn't her taste of choice that day I suppose uh but uh yeah spent sent about two hours doing this whole teabag routine uh my skipper saw my head where I had gone down and dropped a mark and became the on-scene commander um he he kind of kept his eyes on as long as he could, and he was running low on gas. So in that time, he was able to luckily coordinate with other aircraft in the area and radio relay and get all these other people coming out to my position and share my position. He, In the time that he had while he was out there, he spotted a fishing boat that was about a mile away, and he tried to get a hold of him on Maritime Guard, uh, button 16, and, uh, and it's something that everybody's always supposed to be listening to, kind of the emergency frequency. Is it just like and, uh, a, a radio, like that, um, kind of like, a, I've heard it on boats before. I'm wondering if yep. that's the line I'm yep. thinking of. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. It's the, it's the free, it's the radio frequency and everything that they, they use on the, on boats. Uh, and basically he tried to talk to them on there and they weren't responding. So he got down low and he thumped their boat with, okay. the, with his jet. <laughs> so he just came bombing over, uh, the bow of their vessel and hauling ass, you know, and got their attention and, and they, they ended up. Uh, coordinating and getting over to my position the the jet when it impacted the water it impacted the water so fast that there was like no explosion no noise Uh, I think they said like some of the largest chunks they found of the jet after were like the size of an envelope like a postcard or so you know uh, when you said that vaporized and when you said that to me it was wild because we've had a guy um, uh, uh, Tommy from 15 fathoms he used to be a he was a diver for the Navy and he did, um, they would do aircraft recovery and they were telling me about times when an aircraft goes in off of a jet, something like that, something goes wrong. And when you said that your, your plane had disintegrated, he had explained to me how easy it was. So I rudely interrupted you, um, because we needed to move because as some of you were maybe listening, because I'm going to do our, we'll do our best to edit, but as some of you may be listening, because we are at the warrior angel four by four by 48, we are out in the woods and we are running and we are also outside podcasting and I love being outside so I really interrupted you but the reason I brought that up was because when I had talked to a friend of mine about recovering um, aircraft when you said that your your plane disintegrated I can't even tell you I wish that I was recording our run because when you hear something like that for the first time it's a shock to the system to see you. You're running. You're running four miles with me while talking about having your body blown into literal nothing, and you're like, "I'm fine. This yeah. is normal." Yeah. Okay. Uh. I mean, I, I guess. So uh, I think we're at the point where your plane disintegrates. Um, yeah, it disintegrated in this fishing vessel that was uh, about a mile away from the position. Hadn't even heard any explosion or anything. Uh, and luckily, uh, my skipper was able to get their attention and get them coming back to my position. Uh, they showed up, and 
they threw a rope out to me and from from what I've heard I was I was in and out of consciousness through a lot of this and have retrograde amnesia from a lot but I've been able to recreate the story from data from the flight recorder like the black box that came out with the ejection seat um, the on-scene commanders that were there the people that were in aircraft and on the boat and the rescue swimmers and I've been able to kind of recreate everything from what little memory I have of it and everything to put it back together but uh, they showed up they 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 threw a rope out to me uh, apparently it had kind of just tangled in the parachute lines that were still attached to me uh, wrapped around my neck it wasn't it wasn't a good situation and they kind of realized hey we we can't like we can't pull this guy out which later found out was really good had they pulled me onto the boat they said they would have had to have put me back in the water to get the helicopter to pull me out so I would have died from that like the trauma of that the trauma of that and uh so luckily they didn't do that but they did give like a visual reference to where i was at so now not only do people have this mark they they didn't have to look for this little tiny dark head bobbing around in the ocean they were able to see this boat which was hugely helpful uh in the meantime uh there were two helicopters in route uh one was from uh i believe hs11 which was operating off an aircraft carrier out in that area and one was from HSC 28, and I think, if I remember correctly, they were doing uh, some weapons training with uh, with some uh, SEAL team guys down at Navy Dare, North Carolina, doing some weapons training. And they kind of diverted, were like, "Hey, we got to go help out. There's a SAR uh, search and rescue." So, luckily, both these helicopters are converging on my position, um, and they both kind of showed up around the same time. Um, there was some sort of miscommunication with the first rescue swimmer that went in and thought that I was on, uh, from my, as I understand, he thought I was on the fishing boat. And so he started swimming to the fishing boat and the other helicopter saw that guy kind of go past me and they sent their dive, their rescue swimmer in. Okay. And so he swam up to me. He, um, he cut the paracords off of me and pulled me up into their helicopter pretty quickly. He didn't put me on a backboard or anything, um, Actually, as as another kind of wild twist to the story, he had been in uh, this rescue swimmer, Cheech, from HSC 28, uh, the guy who pulled me out. He had been involved in a uh, a helicopter that had gone down just like the week prior. It was a Marine uh, MH-53 Sea Dragon helicopter that had gone down right in that same area, roughly. Um, And because the policy at the time was to... Anytime there was somebody involved in an aircraft accident, they had to backboard him before they could pull him up. And I think most of the crew of that helicopter crash survived the crash, but because it took so long for them to put every person on a backboard and pull him up, um, I think every member of the crew perished from hypothermia. Oh my God. So, so they were saved, but then and so policy. He, so he, Cheech, the rescue swimmer in their, in their, in their helicopter uh, crew were like, hey, like this guy was in an aircraft accident, but they made the game time decision. Like this dude's been in the hour in the water for a couple hours now. He's definitely hyperthermic. He may have a neck injury, but we're just going to deal with that. If if he if he dies from the hypothermia, like who cares if he has a neck injury at that point? Like right. let's just get him out of here. And they made that game time decision because of that previous week's experience that was pretty terrible. And so luckily they got me out. Uh, they hooked me up immediately, pulled me up into the helicopter. Uh, when they got me onto the H-60 C, uh, Seahawk, they, they didn't, I don't think they realized how bad off I was until 
I think they said they lifted up my left arm for some reason to take my blood pressure or something, and my left arm right in the middle uh, of my forearm just flopped in half. And uh, that was when they're like, oh, this guy's this guy's jacked up. Uh, it's disgusting. They took my... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, they, 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 they took my uh, core body temp, and they said my core body temp was 84 degrees Fahrenheit. So I should have been dead from the hypothermia, but they said had my dry suit not ripped open... I would have bled to death warm and toasty in my dry suit. So it was just, the hypothermia was just enough to constrict the blood flow that I didn't bleed to death through my torn brachial artery and my open leg fractures. Um, and uh, seems like you had to have a lot of things line up for you to yeah, be able to survive this. It, it, is, it is almost unbelievable, everything that happened uh, to get me out of there uh, alive. And... Luckily, you know, they, they flew me to Norfolk uh, Sentara Hospital in Norfolk, Virginia, which is a level one trauma center. Um, I heard after the fact, had the other helicopter pick me up, their plan was to take me back to the uh, aircraft carrier to treat me there, not realizing, I think, the extent of my injuries. I was just going to say, could they have treated you there successfully? No, and I think, I think had that happened, had that other helicopter uh, kind of swam past me and not got, had have got me, I, I would have died on the aircraft carrier. So that, that was another crazy twist to the story. Uh, but they got me back to this level one trauma center and they had the dream team on that day. And these guys, uh, you know, first they treated me for the hypothermia um, to kind of get me stable. And then immediately I underwent something like a dozen different surgeries. Um, they had to do fasciotomies of all four of my extremities because mm-hmm. of the compartment syndrome, which is basically everything had swollen up so much from all the damage that it was constricting the blood flow. So they, they cut these huge sections open uh, on your tissue to kind of relieve that pressure. Uh, and, you know, before they learned about uh, that procedure not long ago, you know, back as, I think in World War II is maybe, I don't know for sure, I'm pulling that out of my ass, but no, not it, that long it's ago. Not, it's not crazy long ago. Um, you know, the only answer when somebody was as bashed as me would have just been to amputate all of my limbs. So... Luckily, because of these fasciotomies, they were able to not have to do that. Um, they put uh, titanium rods in both of my upper arms uh, into the humerus uh, with screws attaching it. My left forearm was kind of rebuilt with a big steel plate and screws. Uh, and then both of my legs, they ran those uh, tibial nails, these big rods, down into my tibia and attached them with screws. Um, they had fasciotomies on all four of my extremities, uh, they were, I was about to have my right uh, arm amputated, or at least the, the lower part of my arm, because uh, there was just no blood flow to it from the brachial artery uh, mm-hmm. being severed. Uh, I don't think it was fully severed, but at least ripped open significantly. And they were able to do a vein graft to reconnect it, like within hours of me losing my hand. Uh, and so at this point, uh, I went under all these surgeries. Um, they put me under for the surgeries. Uh, and then after a week, uh, they were hoping to get me out of this comatose state, and I just wasn't coming to. And so, you know, all my my family's there, my squadron mates, and they're just thinking this guy is this guy's not he's not going to make it. Maybe you know, like it was pretty gloomy from the sounds of talking to guys while they were sitting in the uh, sitting in the waiting room waiting to hear if I was just going to be a vegetable or even make it and uh somebody i don't i don't know i don't remember who it was uh came into the ready room and they're like ah he's a scrappy motherfucker he'll be fine (laughs) and so 
that was when I got my call sign Smurf, which is, uh, you know, the real version is uh, for scrappy motherfucker, a kind of makeshift acronym of that. And then, you know, because everything has to have a politically correct cover story. I was, it was just going to say. Uh, <laughs> it's because I'm a short guy that turned blue from hypothermia in the water. So, <laughs> That's legit. Uh, Smurf was born. And, uh, and after another week of being in this comatose state, um, like the lights started clicking on again. Uh, and uh, I remember hearing some of my squadron mates talking and my parents talking and uh, just kind of came out of it like I was coming out of a dream. Uh, and a combination of the head injury and just all the drugs I was on, I was pretty out of it. I had no idea how I got there. I had no comprehension of being in an ejection. I, it was like I just woke up from a dream from a regular night in this place. How long from the time that you crashed the jet to the time that you actually realized what was happening and where you were it took me several weeks to even comprehend that I had been in an accident of any sort uh and it took months before I kind of started getting my head around like kind of what all had happened um but I woke up and they had because of all of these fasciotomies and surgeries uh they had basically like vacuum sealed my whole body in this plastic wrap uh, I had, you know, hundreds of stitches and staples kind of holding me all together. And I was, I was like, I probably looked like Frankenstein, you know. Uh, and I remember coming to and this all this vacuum sealed stuff and I was paralyzed. And I remember they had this little wool blanket over me. And I remember thinking the wool blanket was must have been made out of lead or something because it was pinning me to the bed, I thought. Like I tried mm. to move the blanket, but it felt so heavy. Uh, and it was just because I was paralyzed. Uh, and, uh, basically, uh, yeah, just slowly came to, uh, you know, I was on a catheter, uh, I was on a ton of different drugs, you know, they had me on copious amounts of Dilaudid and amitriptyline and tramadone, trazodone, tramadol. I can't even think of the whole list of all this poly- polypharma that was going on. Oh uh, and, uh. I remember after a couple of weeks in the ICU, they kind of came in and were like, Hey, we're just trying to be real with you, but you know, you're, you're never going to walk again. You're, you're definitely not flying again. You're, you're done. Uh, and, and was that because you weren't paralyzed? You, you didn't get paralyzed like from a, a spinal cord issue. You broke your neck though. I did break my neck, but it was just the spinal process, which is like the little fin that sticks out the neck. Mm-hmm. But I still had, uh, you know, a broken neck and they were concerned that uh, I don't know exactly what all was causing me to be paralyzed to the extent I was it was probably in a big part the local nerve injuries combined with all the surgeries and the trauma and then potentially some of the neck injury playing in there I don't I don't know exactly <laughs> the intricacies of it because there was just so much going on but uh, I remember thinking like after they told me yeah you're never gonna walk you're never gonna fly I remember just something in me was like, fuck you. I'm going to prove you wrong. You know, like just watch me. And the more the like naysaying and and negative stuff they kept saying, I was just like, all right, I'm just going (laughs) to use that as fuel. Fuel. And, uh, you know, little by little, uh, I, they ended up transferring me down to Richmond, Virginia, or I guess up, uh, geographically, uh, from Virginia beach, uh, area or, uh, Norfolk, Portsmouth area to uh, the Richmond VA Polytrauma Center, uh, 
and that was where you know guys who've been blown up by IEDs and RPGs and you know there's like team member dudes whose parachutes uh, didn't open and impacted the water or the ground and like just destroyed their legs and their hips and like guys with multiple complex injuries are in this unit and it's especially for people who are just got really fucked up and uh, I was pretty happy to go there and like get on this program at this point I was still pretty much fully paralyzed I could kind of wiggle down to the bottom of my uh, the bottom of my bed uh, and, and kind of sit up and I think that's what they were able to finally get me out of the ICU when I could do that um, but I had a long ways to go at this point. And so when I got to the polytrauma center, that was where I started doing like all day, every day, uh, was, uh, you know, I'd wake up and I did speech therapy and vision therapy and kinesiotherapy, occupational therapy, uh, physical therapy, all this, all this stuff, uh, all day basically. And they had, you know, really good staff there. They had a lot of people that were in it for the right reasons and really wanted to help and uh, I was lucky to be there um, but I also had some frustrations with it there and that um, I remember you know I was just like I just want to get some sleep and and kind of because of my condition and the the stability I was at they were still having to wake me up through the night to check my vitals and things like that um, for a while and then one of my biggest frustrations there was you know they have all these all this fancy equipment and this and these new facilities and every room has these big screen TVs and like you see the facade of it it looks very nice and you'd go wow this is incredible and mm-hmm. yeah it's light years ahead of what was going on you know with Vietnam era veterans that were put in the VA hospital where they you know had 12 dudes crammed in a little tiny room and they're all just covered in shit and piss and they're lucky to see one nurse a day and like it was awful back then so it had it's come a long ways, so I'm not saying it was anywhere near as bad as that, but there were still some very frustrating shortcomings, and I think the biggest was they have all this money into all this stuff and all this medication they're giving me, like a tremendous amount of dozens of medications, you know, and yet the food that we were getting fed was so bad. I remember we had it was called the holiday feast. So this is, Oh like, yeah. We were just talking about oh, ah, <laughs> this game. We finished the run uh, and we were stretching and we were talking about the food. I'm looking at Nikki too, cause he's going to tell you this example and it's disgusting. So the holiday feast, uh, was, it was like sliced leftover deli meat that was kind of slimy, you know, like the stuff that was about to go rancid at the deli that they're selling on half off. That was the meat just these sliced deli meat slimy things and then the uh the mashed potatoes were clearly like a boxed mashed potato all like chunky and crunchy stuff in it the the gravy on top it looked like it had come out of a dog food can like the rings were still in the the gelatinous brown stuff on top oh that's that word and then and then (laughs) sorry you you don't like that word i don't like that word and then and then uh the 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 cranberry sauce was this white generic jelly packet that said cranberry in like big black lettering on the side. And when you open it up and squeeze it out, it was just like this, this pinkish purple jello basically looking stuff. And and that was the holiday feast. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, there's, this food is basically driven from, I think it was from Hampton Road. So this, this food is like basically heated, packed into metal containers and then driven all the way to Richmond, which is like, 
depending on traffic, like an hour and a half or so drive. Oh. So by the time you're getting the stuff, it's already been like reheated, like super processed, reheated, and then this sitting in a metal container. And it was it was terrible. And, and that really frustrated me because I'm like, here, you're spending all this money on all this other stuff. And, and you're, you know, you could have taken one or two of the medications off the list of all this stuff I was mm-hmm. getting. And you could have paid for a wonderful meal for everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. and it didn't have to be fancy, but just like some fresh fruits and vegetables, some like halfway decent, anything, you know, something that wasn't overly processed. And and I saw so many people there that were getting all this treatment and not getting better. And it's like, yeah, because they're getting fed garbage. And I was really lucky because I had family support and things bringing me food from the outside so I was able to get some nutrition along with it. And I think that's what made a big difference in my recovery while I was there. Um, and eventually, like, uh, I went from basically shitting myself and having people have to wipe me and, like, just the how unpleasant that is for everybody involved to... Uh, I remember my pinky finger and my ring finger started working on my left hand, and I was so happy and excited and my bicep didn't quite work in my left arm but I slowly worked to where I could uh, brush my teeth with those two fingers and I could shave and like do some basic necessities to take care of myself again and that was like everybody's like holy cow I can't believe your left hand is working that well yeah and again this is just two fingers but uh, it was a lot and you know that kind of just kept me going like all right you said that wasn't going to happen and it did all right I'm going to do a little more and before long, my, my right arm, which they're like, that thing is definitely not. Like, this is the one they almost cut right off. Uh, one day, it just started kind of shaking and moving a little bit. And I remember trying to write with it for the first time, and it was real shaky. And it looked like I, you know, must have been on a massage chair or something shaking <laughs> while I was writing because it was so shaky. But little by little, that arm started working. And uh, by the end of three months, I was able to walk on a walker, and they ended up sending me uh, back to Virginia Beach, uh, and I started doing outpatient therapy uh, through Portsmouth Naval Hospital. Uh, and, you know, things were slow going there. I remember at this point, I'm still really out of it. Like, people are trying to explain my medical care to me, and I just have, I can't remember anything. Like, people were having to write everything down for me, and, and I had to have, like, an advocate with me at all times because I just didn't know what was going on. Was that just um, medication, or was that also just from the head trauma? From I think a combination you know, uh, of both. Um, but you know, I spent, uh, several more months getting after it. And luckily, uh, one of my squadron mates, uh, Smugla, his wife was a physical therapist just by chance, uh, aunt Smugs. And as we aunt call, Smugs. uh, it was uncle and aunt Smugs. Cause they were just I like, they were like the awesome aunt and uncle to all the yeah. junior officers in our squadron. Uh, and she kind of like, took me in under her wing and her approach was very different than the physical therapy I was getting. Uh, not that that wasn't good, but she was like, she showed up day one and she had a Nalgene bottle and on the side of it, it said patient's tears. Oh dear. And, okay. uh, and then I was walking with a cane, I think when I first showed up and she, the first thing she did is she took that and she's like, don't fucking use that. And so she proceeded to just beat my ass uh tough lie in it a little bit i loved it you know i was you know before this injury uh all these injuries i was you know i was big into fitness and so i really liked that and that helped me like have somebody who wasn't going to give me you know wasn't going to take it easy on me and like coddle me but just kick my ass and that she did 
And I continue doing all the outpatient therapy as well. And uh, at this point, um, it had been a few months and there was a lot of pressure for me to do uh, a FENAB, which is uh, a field naval aviator evaluation board, which is anytime there's a class A mishap where there's, uh, I think it's damage over a million dollars or something done, uh, there's got to be a FENAB. I was going to ask you about that because we mm-hmm. never talked about that. I mean, what happens when a, when a pilot you know, like crashes a plane or ejects from a plane? I mean, that's, there's got to be some level of responsibility there. Oh, abs- absolutely. And, uh, you know, I was, I was still hobbling around and I had to go in and do this, uh, this evaluation board. You know, I had just crashed uh, an, 80 mi- an $89 million <laughs> aircraft uh, by a mistake, you know, a mistake that I made. And so uh, it was a pretty... It was it was a very informal process initially, and and you know there were definitely some hard questions, and they kind of got to the bottom of everything. And uh, luckily, when you do these phenabs, it's done amongst a group of fellow aviators, and so they understand the world that you're operating in. And I think it's easy for people who are not in that world to be like, "Oh, you made a mistake, and you fucked up, and so yeah, you'd never get to fly again. You're an idiot." And I think people in that community realize like we're we're pushing the edges of what's possible in these aircraft and we're doing very dynamic things and there have been other more experienced pilots than me do similar things to what happened to me uh and and, and so luckily I think I eventually had to go stand tall in front of an admiral in my dress whites and everything and go through that very formal part of it and and but they were very understanding. They're like, yeah, you understand that you fucked up, but you recognize that. And, you know, and they and they basically granted me the right to to return to flying um, if I could get better, you know, if I could heal. Um, so I at least that was given that gave me another like shred of hope. Like, hey, if if I can heal up, they're going to let me fly jets again. And uh, that was pretty huge motivation. And really the whole the whole strike fighter community was behind me. Like I would go out and like see people out and about in Virginia beach. And they were like, Hey man, fucking awesome that you're here and like hanging out and like getting back at it. And like, Mm -hmm. um, so I had a lot of support from that community. Um, and so at this point, uh, I ended up having to go to another surgery. One of the, uh, tibial nails, which is that rod that is in my leg on my left side, it was just slightly protruding at the top and it was causing every time I would extend my leg and lock my leg out, it would jam into my tissue and my knee. Oh, oh. So it was kind of like every time I put weight on that leg, it was like someone was stabbing a knife into the tissue inside of my mm. knee. And so they, they did a bunch of imagery and they're like, yep, that's just sticking out just enough to cause this. And, and considering, you know, the way they had put me back together, it was a, a miracle that that was the only like little issue with everything. And so I ended up going through another surgery uh, to have that nail replaced and put a shorter one in. And I don't know exactly what happened, um, but there was some sort of miscommunication. Uh, and when they finished the surgery, I basically got wheeled out to the side of the parking lot at the Portsmouth Naval Hospital in my gown still. I had no clothes on underneath. My ass is basically <laughs> hanging out the back of this wheelchair. Fantastic. And one of the nurses eventually had come down and, and like checked and was like, hey, is somebody picking you up? And I was like, I don't think so. I thought I was like staying the night, you know, staying here for a while. And they're like, okay, we're going to get you a room. Well, they're, you know, short staffed or whatever. Luckily they were able to find a room for me and moved me into it. And, you know, they had like 
they had no resources to give me. They had no one there. And they ended up putting like basically a brand new ensign nurse, like just had showed up basically. And, uh, a corpsman who, who had just showed up and they were, you know, brand new and kind of put in a situation over their head where they're responsible for me. And, uh, I remember they put in the IV for me when they got me into the room and it, it was a sub Q, which is basically where instead of the fluids going into uh, into my bloodstream, it was going into the skin, and I could see my arm like swelling up on my forearm like a water balloon. And I remember being like, "Hey, I think you subcued it." And they're like, uh, "Oh no, they they weren't really sure." And they're like, "It's good." And you know, this went on for a while, and I was like, "I don't think I'm getting any fluids." And, and in the meantime, the you know the dozen plus medication I'm on. Uh, a lot of them, things like oxycodone and gabapentin and some pretty heavy stuff. I started going through withdrawals because I wasn't on that medication. So I'm subcued. I'm not getting fluids. I'm not getting my medication I've been taking that I'm going through withdrawals. And now I'm extremely dehydrated. Uh, I remember they had me pee and it was just brown. Like the seek medical attention brown pee. Like the concer- <laughs> we're concerned here. Uh, and I remember them seeing that and being like, what the fuck is going on? And eventually, uh, luckily my friends, uh, showed up and they saw what was going on and they saw the pain, like from the withdrawals and the surgery pain and the fact that the meds were wearing off and like the dehydration and everything combined. I was in just like 10 out of 10 pain, like the worst pain I've ever experienced yelling and screaming and and in between screams, I'd like apologize. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. It's painful. Uh, and eventually they got a doctor on the floor and they like, they hooked me up to a bunch of Dilaudid uh, and they, they started treating me and they got fluids back into me. Uh, but I remember they, they're like, Hey man, before you can leave, you've, you've got to be able to walk. So they had me try to walk down. Uh, to a nearby room that was maybe like a hundred feet down but I was like I just want to get the fuck out of here and so I'm still like peeing brown and I'm just had surgery on my leg I can barely walk as is and I use a walker and I kind of hobble myself down to the the room that was just down from where I was at and that was a room where there's some physical therapists and they kind of saw me and they're like what the fuck is going on with this dude and I was dry heaving into this trash can and I think at that point like there were enough people realizing something, this is not right. Like this dude is in a bad place. And, and luckily, you know, they got me, uh, they got my medications ordered and, and, and things kind of worked out and I got out of there, but I almost, you know, had my friends not showed up, I think I would have, I would have died, uh, after that surgery, just from dehydration, basically. That's so terrifying that you would have you would have survived everything. (laughs) You would have hypothermia, broken limbs, tons of surgeries, and it would have been the hospital that would have killed you. And, uh, and so I got out of there, uh, later, uh, I had a, a way better experience. Uh, I had my median nerve in my left arm was severed. So, Basically, I wasn't able to make a fist. My thumb, index finger, and my middle finger, are they're still numb and very atrophied. But at the point, I couldn't make a fist with them, so I couldn't grab stuff. I was just using my pinky and my ring finger on my left hand. And so they did a, a tendon transfer, and the doctor I had was awesome. Like uh, His name is Dr. Christopher Hogan. If you're out there, thank you. Uh, but Have you he, not spoken to him? Uh, I, I kind of lost... lost 
touch with him. Oh my but, gosh! But uh, but he did this this tendon transfer, and and from my understanding, he basically learned from not that I'm promoting Nazi Germany, but he basically learned from medical experiments that were done uh, to Holocaust, you know, to to prisoners uh, back in the Holocaust. And one of the things they learned was this this tendon transfer procedure. And he had read this stuff, and you know, at least something good came out of all that suffering. And he was able to basically split one of the tendons in my middle finger and run it to my index finger, and split a tendon from my wrist and run it to my thumb. And after a few months after recovery, I was able to play the piano again. And that's uh, wild. Yeah, so I went from like a non-functional hand, and it's still numb and, and screwed up, and I have about fifty percent strength in it, but it gave me you know enough function to start getting by a little better um and after two years i was able to max out the navy's physical fitness test i was you know outrunning most of the people in my command i was at it getting bad at it and and, and they people saw and they're like holy shit he's like he's back mm-hmm. and they put me in a simulator and they ran me through all this stuff to see if i could like operate the controls and they had me gear up and climb up the ladder to see if i could you know, do all that stuff. And I was doing it and I thought I was like for, I was good and I was back and they, they put in the recommendation and like within a, like a one day's notice, they're like, Hey, you're classing up, man, you're going back and you're going to fly F-18s again. And I went back through the F-18, uh, rag or fleet replacement squadron at VFA 106 in Virginia beach. And that I spent another year, like just retraining, uh, in the F-18 and and uh, after a year, I completed it. Uh, I I was felt like I was crushing it. I had some some little minor things going on that I didn't really know what they were. Like sometimes I would just zone out a little, and I had some behavioral stuff that got weird sometimes. But I just mostly just ignored it. But for the most part, was feeling great. Um, and so I ended up uh, getting assigned to VFA one thirty six Nighthawks in uh, Lemoore, California. And my wife and I moved out there and started the squadron. And, you know, it was awesome to be, like, back at the fleet and, like, going to fly gray jets again for real and, like, getting to do big boy stuff. And it seemed like, you know, I'd made it. And then uh, it wasn't terribly long after I was at the squadron. I think less than six months we were on we were on a... Um, we were on a detachment at Tyndall Air Force Base doing uh, a missile shoot. And I got to shoot uh, a nine mic uh, sidewander, like a heat-seeking missile, basically at a drone, and it was really cool. And, and I came back from the flight, and I couldn't remember like ninety percent of the flight. Oh my god, that's uh, terrifying! And and I remember like watching the tapes of what had happened, and I was like, I, I don't remember this. Um, and I was kind of at first, I just kind of kept it to myself and just kind of went about my business that day. I was like, maybe I just need to get some sleep, like. Was that the first time that it ever happened to you? To like- that extent, yeah. Um, I had like really minor things prior that I was just like, whatever, that's, you know, normal. Sometimes you like get busy and forget something. But this is the first time it was that extreme. And the next day I, I remember going to bed and uh, I couldn't do the math to set my alarm for when I needed to get up which was really bizarre because you're a fighter pilot Uh, and I should have been able to do that. (laughs) Uh, and I remember the floor pulsing under me and I was getting vertigo and it was just something wasn't right. And, and it was kind of a hot topic at that point was, uh, people getting decompression sickness from, uh, apparently there's some valves that were 
known to be problematic in the F-18's uh, pressurization system. And it's similar to like uh, the bends that the uh, divers can get if you come up too quickly from uh, deep in the ocean. Basically, the nitrogen in your blood can come out of solution and form little bubbles. And if you get it in your joints and things, they call it the bends. That's like a type 1 DCS. And that that causes a lot of pain and aching. Um, but you can also get those bubbles forming in your brain. And when that happens, um, you can have all sorts of mental dysfunction. It can even kill people. And there had been people that had had serious brain problems from this type 2 DCS caused by the the ECS systems going bad, the environmental control systems uh, freaking out and just pressurizing and depressurizing and repeatedly doing it, sometimes, you know, going up to 40,000 feet and then back down to sea level rapidly. And so I thought maybe that's what happened. And so uh, I ended up reaching out to the safety officer in the squadron and was like, hey, I think I think I might have decompression sickness. And they took me to a nearby Navy dive base um, in Florida there. And they brought me in and they were kind of doing some tests on me. And I was pretty out of it and just like grumpy and pissy. And, you know, they, they weren't really sure what was going on. But they decided to put me in to the chamber, the hyperbaric chamber. Yep. And they squeezed me. And I spent a few hours in there breathing oxygen and being under that pressure and after a few hours I kind of like started feeling like myself again a little bit and was like laughing again and telling jokes and 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 kind of came out of it and they brought me out of the chamber and they're like hey you know that's great you feel a little better now but let's let's maybe talk to you tomorrow so the next day went back in and started talking to the doc there uh he's a young dude I don't remember his name but super smart and he's kind of like hey man listen you know, maybe it was DCS, but I think there's more going on. And so I really recommend when you get back to Lemoore, uh, you go into medical and you start talking to him about this. And so, you know, that's the last thing you want to have to do is like go to medical, especially if you're having psychological things is because that's like a death sentence uh, for flying. But I did it because I was like, I don't want to be a danger to people. I don't, right. uh, I don't want to push this more and cause more damage. Um, so when I got back, I went in and started seeing the docs and eventually got referred to psychology and the psychiatrist. And they diagnosed me with delayed onset PTSD. Uh, they started me on some different drug therapies along with uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, CPT, uh, cognitive processing therapy, I think is what it is, and a few other things. And a lot of these traditional clinically based therapies uh, and medications and in the meantime, I was starting to experience more pain in my left leg from some of the injuries, and they were they were able to get me into Stanford, and they did some uh, they did a bunch of imagery there. I did a bunch of MRIs and stuff, and they ended up doing a couple more surgeries on my leg, hoping that they could help some of the pain issues and the function of my leg. And unfortunately, you know, with an elective surgery like that, it was kind of hit or miss, and, and the second one made things worse for sure. Uh, and so it was kind of like these things are getting worse. And then the more medication they gave me, the worse my mental function was getting. And it got to the point where I started going into uh, psychoses. Uh, and it started as feeling kind of like I was in the Truman Show, I guess you could say. Like everything was scripted around me and I felt like everybody were act was actors and like, you know, everything was tailored towards me. And then it progressed to paranoia and hypervigilance. And it got to the point where... I thought the government was hunting me. I thought 
My water was poisoned. I thought my food was poisoned. I was afraid to go near the windows. I thought my wife was like a, a special agent, like sent to rescue me, uh, going by road signs. Uh, I remember seeing the letters scrambling and there were like secret messages for me in them. And like, I didn't know what was going on, but I was definitely out of it. And luckily my wife was huge support, all the medical staff on base. I had the support of my command. Like everybody was behind me, like to try to help me fortunately. And a lot of guys going through this don't get that. No, not, not at all. Uh, and luckily my wife was able to keep me from being hospitalized, um, for mental health. And she dealt with a lot. We had our newborn son who was just barely a few months old at this point. And, uh, yeah, it got to the point where I felt pretty hopeless. The drugs were just making it worse. It felt in my pro like the outlook was looking worse and worse. Like I'm not going to go back to flying at this point. And I got to the point where I was like, ready to take myself out of my misery. I kept a pistol in my in my little end table by the bed. And I remember like going to reach to get it out and thinking about what is the barrel going to feel like on my teeth? What is that, you know, the gun oil? What's it going to taste like in my mouth? And, and I looked over and my wife and my son were sitting there sleeping peacefully. And I would mainly, I was just like, I just, I don't want to wake them up was kind of what I thought. But I really didn't want to I didn't want to do that to them. And had I not had them there at that very moment, I mean, I would have picked that up and put it right in my mouth and would be gone. And luckily I just had enough with my, I had my, my kid there and my wife was just enough to keep me from having that happen. And eventually uh, it got to the point where it was necessary to do a medical board. I had been on limited duty again for another year. And so it was kind of the decision we made. It was like, this is the route we have to go. And, and, and a process which should be pretty easy and straightforward, especially with a case like mine with all this well-documented stuff, very obviously caused uh, through my service in the military. It still was less process riddled with all these cracks and booby traps, essentially, that you could fall through. And I understand that they, they make the process the way they do to prevent people from, you know, fraudulently claiming things that aren't real. It's still a lot though, and it's very intrusive, and it's it's really aggressive, and it's it's yeah. You get you get treated like you are lying about yeah, like a, lot a criminal of right yep. off the bat, and 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 you kind of get second guessed, and and you know medical records for whatever reason go into the VA, they can't be transferred, like things get lost. Mm-hmm. I remember I saw some I saw some people at the VA, and they were incredible and helped me out tremendously, and then I saw a neurologist there, and he basically. I told him about my brain injury and all the nerve damage I had, which you can physically see. You like, can see the scars all over you your can body. See atrophy, <laughs> and you can see things without any, like, I mean, you can see there's, you know, nerve damage. Yeah, on all your fingers there. And, and and he looked at me, and he he basically was like, oh, this will all get better. This isn't an issue. And just ignored everything and sent me out of the room after two minutes of looking at me. Oh uh, and I was so frustrated, like... I'm just trying to get help, man. I'm just trying to make the best of my life at this point. Like, I don't want to have to leave flying. I don't want to have to leave this, but I don't really have a good choice. And then just that treatment. And eventually everything finally got put together after over a year. And the med board went to uh, the higher levels of it on the DOD side. And it came back and they were going to try to just give me 50% disability for PTSD, 
which was like, how did they not get all the other stuff that was going on? Like they knew you ejected out of a plane, right? Yeah. Do, do they know that? Do uh, they know that you, 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 your body's held together by rods? Do they know that? It seemed like they just ignored all that. And what had happened was one piece of paperwork at the very beginning of the process, because I had a referred condition for PTSD, and they didn't include on this one piece of paperwork that there were all these other things, which they're kind of assumed like, okay, we're just going to send your medical records, and they're going to see all that, and it's going to be obvious for right. the med board. Well, whatever stickler reviewed my case is like, oh, well, it's not in the... It's not in the referred conditions, so we're not gonna we can't count any of that stuff. And so at this point, it had been like eighteen <laughs> months of me like being in this limbo and being treated this way and being in and out of psychoses and just trying to like hold on to a you know a shred of hope and like then that happened and you know luckily we were able to appeal it. I had to fly out to Washington D.C. with my wife. Is very formal, like you have to get in your. Uh, I was in my summer whites uniform, all decked out, and you have to walk into this room, and it's very intense because it's these three senior military guys basically def- deciding your fate if you are worthy of, you know, a medical retirement or not. And I walked into the room, and there was some consternation and, and some hoeing and humming. And what is there to hoe and hum on? And luckily, luckily, uh, one of the guys in the room. Uh, he was uh, a Marine, and I think this is a dude who had, you know, been through some hell himself and, like, really seen some shit. And he's kind of like, listen, you you served your country honorably. You got fucked up doing it. Mm-hmm. We're going to help you out. And he, he gave me a, you know, he medically retired me at that point at 100%. But, you know, the dynamics of that room, had he not been in the room or I had I could have had a different batch of people, you know, it would, it could have easily gone the other way. And, and that happens to so many. And there's, there's countless homeless people living under bridges in Washington, DC, that that decision went the other way. And I mean, I've talked to, I talked to a Marine Corps veteran who served 16 or 17 years, had done, I think five or six combat deployments. He had been shot twice with seven, six, two rounds, recovered from that, got a purple heart, went back, he had earned multiple uh, bronze stars with valor, and he was a decorated war hero. He had been blown up with an ID, and then eventually he, I think he was hit with an RPG and lost his leg. And he had to go through a medical board, and he had a similar situation. Like, he was a decorated war hero who served 16 years doing that and kept coming back after three Purple Hearts. And even with all of that, they tried to deny him every step of the way. And this, is, this isn't this is just like a onesie-twosie thing. This is like the standard of the the process is like that. But luckily, it, it turned out good for my family, and it gave us a lifeline. Uh, once I was medically retired, we had moved back to northern Michigan where we both had family. Uh, and I continued these traditional therapies and taking the pharmaceutical drugs that were recommended to me by the psychiatrist. And I remember taking the drugs and then being like, you know, we don't like to give you drugs, but this is Here's some more. This is what we got to do. And I remember going in and being like, I don't think the drugs are working. Things are getting worse. I feel worse. I feel numb. I feel depressed. I feel these anger fits. I was getting like aggression, so angry and aggressive. And I had just become a shell of who I was like before this, like friends would describe me as like a, 
is like a, a happy golden retriever, you know? Like <laughs> I mean, it matches pretty... your hair and your yeah. beard. <laughs> yeah. Nikki has photos. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and now I'm this guy who's like a, a toxic existence in my family's life. Who's angry all the time and yelling at my kid and my wife and just the trauma my wife had gone through at this point, getting through this was terrible, you know? And it got to the point where they kept giving me more medication and it kept getting worse. And I was on the highest dose I had been on yet of Seroquel, which is a pretty heavy duty antipsychotic medication that I had initially started taking just for sleep. Um, but it progressed and my wife came out early in the morning. Uh, I think it was, and she was sleeping with our son at that point was about one year old and she came out and I had shaved most of my hair off of my head. I had shaved off my eyebrows for some reason. And I was dressed in nothing but a plastic garbage bag. Uh, and it was February in northern Michigan and it's cold and snowing outside. And I was about to go outside to fight crime like Batman or something. Uh, and so she called 911. They sent a police car to pick me up. And she's like, I'd, I'd rather just take him rather than have to go into the back of a police car. And she drove me to the ER. And I remember on the ride to the emergency room, it felt like we were driving out of like a nuclear blast. I remember looking in the rearview mirror and seeing this huge mushroom cloud and like debris. And there were cars flying through the air and trees and lightning and thunder. And this was all in my imagination. But I was completely out of touch with reality at this point. And they got me to the ER, admitted me. Uh, I think I had, like, tried to take my clothes off, like, walking through the lobby at the ER. And there was a police officer there. I think I tried to—I think I did pee on, like, a bush, like, in the lobby or out front. And the cop was, like, ready to take me to jail right then and there. And luckily— you know, my wife's like, hey, here's what's going on, and, like, yeah. pulled me away, and he kind of, like, was like, right. and uh, anyways, they got me admitted. I had an extremely intense, like, psychosis at that point. Um, I, like, traveled through time, and, like, I saw into the future. I went from, like, the beginning of the first cell of life through the history of the dinosaurs and, like, my life, and then into the future where I imagined, like, this crazy apocalyptic future where uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos had basically taken over the world and like everyone was just addicted to all his stuff and like everybody had gone completely nuts and had these crazy smiles and feels it was, like it's now. It was it was intense. Uh, some of it based on real things and some of it just complete uh, out there. I I remember my wife said she'd come and I was trying to feed. I thought there was a monster that lived on the other side of the wall and I was trying to push food under the wall to like get it to this monster because he was my friend. Uh, and uh, after a few days, they got me stable enough to ride in a ambulance down to the Battle Creek uh, VA hospital. And once I got down there, uh, I basically was immersed in this other nightmare, um, to put it lightly. Um, you know, in Sears school, you get a very, uh, a very mellow PG 13 version of capture and, and, and torture and some of these things. Uh, but it was far beyond that, what I experienced. And, and I'm able to look back and I'm able to see when I was in psychosis in, in a lot of these cases and when it was actually really and what was happening, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at the time things were very blended together, but looking back, I'm able to kind of discern between what was real that was really happening to me and what was me just imagining and 
some of the very real things were happening to me was, you know, medications were absolutely mandatory. And any questioning of that resulted in you being labeled as like a troublemaker. And, and the mentality there was kind of like you're a prisoner and you're going to do what they say. And um, it started off kind of bad and it got worse because, uh, you know, you learn about sleep deprivation and what that can do to your brain. Well, for my safety, so-called safety, every 15 minutes, one of the staff members had to come in and shine a flashlight in my face to make sure I wasn't uh, hurting myself or out. That's a bit um, neurotic. Every 15 minutes? I mean, that every, means- every 15 minutes. And, and most of the staff there was like, yeah, they'll walk by your room and like shine a flash room, flashlight in the room. Uh, well, some of the staff members take this as we got to like shine this in your face and wake you up. And I remember, you know, it's a noisy place. There's a lot of other guys in there. The The facility had kind of been condensed down to this one wing of the facility. And there's a lot of dudes in there. My room had two people in it. Some of the rooms had 10 people in it. And these are all guys that are veterans dealing with some pretty heavy duty psychological issues. So you can imagine kind of the sounds at night, you know, yeah. people moaning and yelling and freaking out. And the rooms, everything echoed because it's like hard tile floors and hard walls. Everything was very echoey. So you could hear somebody at the end of the hall, like, and, and the staff members would walk around with these big keys and attached to their belts and they would clink. And so you'd hear these keys and the clanking of their boots and shoes on the floor. And there's just constantly this noise and disruptions to your sleep. And then on top of that, they're shining flashlights in your face. And at this point, I'm like, I just need to get some sleep. Like, that's what my brain needs to heal. Like if you're a perfectly healthy human and you start getting sleep deprived, you will go into a psychosis within, you know, sometimes within as short as 24 hours, you can start. It it doesn't take long. That's why in the military, Um, they do it to you on a regular basis. They want you to know what it feels like. They want you to know where your limits are and they want to know what the line is for you. But anybody can tell you right now that if you interrupt, you have a baby, you have kids. Yeah. (laughs) If you interrupt a woman's sleep and they sleep for three hour chunks, that's already difficult. 15 minutes is, is legitimate torture. Yeah. And, uh, and, so that was going on on top of the fact that we're in this very much like a prison setting, very small spaces. And yeah, there's, you know, there's a big screen TV. So, you know, if you were to walk into the facility and walk around and be like, oh, this isn't that bad. You got like a big screen TV and movies and stuff. Um, but then the food, you know, the way I mentioned it was at the VA Polytrauma Center in Richmond, you know, the food was equally bad, if not worse at the Battle Creek VA. The water was terrible. Like they had a filtration system on it, but even with the filter, like it just tasted like chlorine and chemical nastiness. So you're, you're not drinking clean water. You're not drinking healthy water. You're eating overly processed foods. There's very little fresh fruits and vegetables, hardly at all. Like I remember got like a a spinach salad once that had like actual green spinach. And that was like, a, a delicacy, you know, and, and they, they pump the place full of like freaking Doritos and, and all sorts of junk foods and Oreos and Nutter Butters. And, and that's what a the lot sugar. of guys in there are just there that they want that because the other food is so lacking in nutrients. And, and so many of the guys are just completely nutrient deficient. And, and when you get like that, you're so hungry, not to mention a lot of these psycho, uh, these meds that you're on 
create, create crazy hunger urges. Like, and so you're just eating junk food, uh, occasionally maybe 20 minutes a week getting out into a concrete yard to go walk around was your version of outside. It's understaffed. A lot of the staff there was incredibly awesome and helpful and caring and compassionate. And there were definitely some bad apples too that, you know, they saw themselves in this position of authority and they wanted to exert that authority in ways that were completely inappropriate. Um, it's wild to me, though, because this is supposed to be a hospital. This is supposed to be a place of healing, right. and yet they're we're treating it and acting like it's a prison, and then we're expecting these other results. And, I mean, it sounds like the setting that you're describing and the things that you're saying, it sounds it sounds very much like a, a juvie building. Like, it doesn't sound yeah. like there's there's anything to promote health. There's no greenery. There's no outside. There's no light. There's no good food. There's no good water. There, and then they're torturing you at night. And, and there were guys that were in there with me, uh, other veterans who, you know, because of whatever, you know, issues they had to go to prison and all the guys that were in there that had been to prison, we, we'd sat around at mealtimes talking about this, but they're like, hands down, every single one of them said we would way rather go to prison than be in this facility. It was, they said just the treatment was so in prison, your treatment's better than in a VA hospital for mental health. And that's where you're supposed to go heal. Uh, and anyways, I, I spent, you know, weeks turned into a better part of a month. And uh, I started getting where I didn't want to take the medications they were giving me because I knew that it was not helpful at that point. And, you know, oh, yeah, here's the crazy guy saying he doesn't want to take his meds. This is the classic cliche or whatever. But what I needed was sleep. What I needed was nutrition. What I needed is to be outside, to have, a, to get to go walk through a field, to be outside. And by the way, they have these facilities there. They have golf courses. They have soccer fields and basketball courts. But we weren't allowed access to any of that. Why is that? I think largely because they're so understaffed. They didn't have enough people to like go out and manage people going outside like that. Um, in part, and probably policies. You know, they don't want. They don't want a bunch of crazy people running around outside. Well, um, let's be honest for a second. If you took a bunch of rangers and seals and marines and you put them outside and they're already dealing with mental health, you're not going to get a nurse that's going to be able to hold down or control or, or yeah. mitigate uh, some of these big dudes that are already struggling psychologically. Yeah, and maybe and maybe that's part of it, but it could be better. It could be a hell of a lot be better. better. And, and, uh, and, and when you start saying you don't want to take the meds, well, what happened to me was I got injected with Haldol, which is uh, an antipsychotic medication that makes you feel like your skin is crawling with ants underneath your skin. It makes you feel extremely restless. If you've ever had like where you're restless and you need to move your leg or your arm and you can't sit still, it was like that you know, times a thousand and all you want to do is run and scream and yell and wiggle. And why would they, why did it's tor? I mean, it's a torturous experience. And I think, I think anybody who administers Heldol should have to have it administered to them the way, like if you're going to carry pepper spray or a taser, you should have to get tased or pepper spray. It's that bad. I'd say it's worse. I mean, I've never been pepper sprayed. I've been electrocuted pretty good, but I've never been pepper sprayed but i would i would say it, it was fucking on par at least with that uh as a 
a terrible experience. And so is it just a way to kind um, of say, like, take your medication or this happens to you again? And then on top of that, um, there's legal ramifications for not wanting to take your medication while you're in there. So, again, I'm in and out of psychoses. I'm just trying to get better. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not being violent. I'm just trying to say, hey, I don't want to take this medication. It's making me feel worse. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, they bring in a lawyer and you're, you know, in this weird state where you're not fully mentally functioning and you're signing legal documents that are basically signing away your rights and putting you on the list as being deemed mentally defective. And so while I was in there, I was put onto a list uh, being deemed mentally defective, which means now in the law enforcement information network, when a cop looks you oh, are fantastic. you are in this you are in this database like you are a criminal because you were at a facility getting mental health treatment and and simply didn't want to take one of the drugs they were giving you because you thought it didn't make you feel good uh and so now you know i can't i can't buy a firearm uh i lost Still? constitutional rights yeah i mean this is permanent this is this doesn't go away um and you know i can't i can't go when my son gets old enough i can't take him to a gun store and buy him a shotgun and go duck hunting with him, you know, like, uh, anyways, to have your constitutional rights taken away and, and people are going to say, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're psychotic. And so, yeah, we don't want crazy people with weapons, but listen, like that, that is something for you to work out. That is something for you to work out on a family level. Like mm-hmm. there are things that can be put in place. You can have, a family member who has the safe to your the, the the code to your safe you can do this safely so that when you start presenting symptoms of psychosis things can be locked up mm-hmm. and it can be done safely and that is an individual choice it is not justification for stripping people of their civil liberties and no you're right and i mean you hear this i mean all the things that are happening currently in current events people getting civil liberties whittled down little by little and and just kind of them just kind of slowly disappearing but Mm -hmm. these are things that are not supposed to be infringed in no matter what and you know that was something our forefathers had the brilliance to see is like a democracy you know 90 percent of people can agree with something and it can be a bad idea but as long as we have these basic rights in place like the democracy can be wrong sometimes but as long as you have these basic things in place the freedom of speech the right to bear arms so on so forth like all that stuff can get jacked up sometimes, but you're always going to have that base to go back to. And that that's like your safety spot. Uh, and, and now that we see all these excuses to whittle away, that stuff is really frustrating. Uh, but anyway, I, I eventually got out of the hospital uh, with the advocacy of my wife and, and my family. I have uh, they all have medical backgrounds, medical professional backgrounds. So they were able to be an advocate for me and say, hey, listen. It's not going good for him in there, um, and we just want to get him out of there and get him home, and we'll take care of him. At this point, I was, you know, reasonable enough that they could take care of me at home. And there were a lot of guys in there that didn't have that. Uh, and when they denied the medication long enough, they would go into electroshock therapy. They would do these, Jesus Christ. They would do these things that you know maybe maybe it's not as violent as it used to be, but it's still it's still violent. Still, and, and, you know, there's guys in there with lobotomies, uh, and you think of this stuff as all this relics of the past of mental health, but no, it's it's pharmaceutical drugs, electroshock therapy, uh, lobotomies, 
and, and, and at the core of it all, you see like, what, what if, what if people in there were, were getting better sleep? What if people in there were getting better nutrition? What if they were getting outside? What if they had activities to keep them busy and active and getting workouts? Like, what if they had people to advocate for them to not be treated like a criminal or like a yeah. test subject? And, 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 and you are kind of a test subject in there. I mean, they bring in medical students and, and you are constantly getting looked at and evaluated and studied. And, that bothers me a lot. And, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's a good that they're using it as an opportunity for people to learn. And, and there were a lot of incredible people in there as staff members that were, you know, there for the right reasons. And, and a lot of them are just like, there's nothing that they can do to change this broken bureaucracy of it all. And, and they know things are wrong and they know the food's fucked up and they know that just drugging people until they're numb and out of it is not the answer, but they, they're really limited power to do anything about it despite really being there for good reasons. But luckily the, my family was able to pull me out. I spent the better part of the next six months in that psychosis still. Um, and eventually kind of like started functioning again. And then I would go back into another psychosis. And it was just kind of that on and off. Uh, and again, just I was going to the VA and taking my drugs and just doing what the psychiatrist recommended. And it got to the point last summer where I was doing a lot of research on my own. Like when I had the mental faculties to do so, I, I've kind of had very inconsistent mental function uh ranging from psychosis and no memory and like not able to read a page with remembering and then I get some of my mental functions back and it's been inconsistent but in that time where I have mental function and can function with it I've been able to read and research and really got into holistic healing and the importance of like a, a anti-inflammatory diet and avoiding processed foods and a lot of processed wheats and things like that and eating a lot more plant-based things and eating good quality meats and, and all this stuff to like give my body a really good chance of healing itself and exercising six to seven days a week and like doing all these basic things that are kind of like you think oh that's a no-brainer but a lot of this I just kind of had to learn on my own like this is this is way more powerful than just taking a bunch of drugs and uh it got to the point where last summer I had done some research and I had learned about uh, psilocybin treatment and the psychedelics. And uh, I read a book by Michael Pollan, How, How to Change Your Mind, and I had learned a bunch more and had heard of other veterans doing these retreats to do a psychedelic experience to kind of help you reset. And so uh, through a friend I was able to find something and and I had an incredible experience with it. Uh, I mean, I, I would definitely say it was like a spiritual experience almost, like getting in touch with the universe that we're all interconnected with. And I came out of it feeling uh, kind of the way I've heard Michael Pollan describe it uh, is a good analogy. It's kind of like a fresh snow on the hill that you've been sledding and skiing down with all these ruts in it. And those mm -hmm. ruts are often... Uh, negative emotions and, uh, and and negative behaviors and just kind of bad stuff in your life that you kind of get in this rut and it becomes your behavior and it becomes your personality. And I came out of it and it, it didn't fix everything, but it was a fresh snow over some of those ruts and it kind of filled some of the stuff in. And I was able to take some new paths and identify things that I was doing that were harmful and were not doing. And one of the things I recognized was like, this continuous treatment of just take more meds and when the meds aren't working just take more of them I just realized was just insanity um, 
I was doing the same thing and the results were the same and it was not working. And, you know, it's hard to go against all the people who are supposed to be the experts and, you know, they have all this education and experience. And I think I know my psychiatrist is incredibly well-intended and he really cares about people and really care, cares about me. And But they, they, they have this very limited, extremely detailed knowledge, but extremely narrow band mm-hmm. of focus and and in and, and anything outside of that realm they really have no idea about and psychedelics being one of them and, and so i had this very good experience and over time uh you know it didn't fix everything immediately but i i you know i was getting healthier i was working out better and smarter i was eating better i was you know trying to be more grateful and trying to be more present and be a better dad and a better husband and uh and eventually got to the point where I, I wasn't taking my medication anymore and I was okay. You know, I wasn't sleeping great and, and, and things are far from perfect. And, and, you know, I'm at the very beginning of this new journey, you know. And then uh, I, I applied for a program that was for a psychedelic retreat and, and I didn't really meet the requirements uh, for it. But they ended up sending me an email one evening, uh, and this is maybe a month ago, for the warrior angel foundation and the fact that they were doing this four by four by 48 challenge, the Goggins challenge. And I was like, this sounds like one, I want to do this challenge cause it sounds awesome. And I want to push myself and see if I can do it. And then I started researching the warrior angel foundation and what they're doing. And, and I, and I listened to, uh, they have a documentary on Amazon mm-hmm. that I listened to, uh, or watched and then quiet explosions, quiet explosions. Yeah. yeah. And, and that kind of was an introduction to it. And then I read Andrew Marr and, uh, and Adam Marr's book, uh, tales from the blast factory, mm-hmm. I think it's called. Uh, and that was really eye opening hearing Andrew's experience that what he had so many similarities, what we had gone through and, and his realization that just doing what the docs at the VA tell you is not, is not working for people. Um, and then learning about uh, Dr. Mark Gordon and mm-hmm. these protocols using things to treat the TBI, treat the brain injury at a physiological level. And, and one of the things that was so eye-opening to me, I had, I had started learning about the importance of hormones prior to this, but it was like hearing them talk about it. It was like all these things that I had been trying to stumble through on my own all like came together. And it was like, yes, this this is the answer. This is the way forward. And, and through that, I mean uh, treating the physiological problems that are caused by the brain injury, which are when your brain is injured, you don't produce hormones at the level that you're supposed to. That's and right. when anybody's hormones get out of whack, you're going to have mood and behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. And then learning about the way, I think, the neurons, and I think he called them the ganglion cells, can shear. And it's kind of the equivalent of you have these these pipelines in your body like an oil pipeline from your brain to your nervous system throughout your body and when that gets sheared from uh from the trauma of you know a brain injury uh then that oil instead of going where it's supposed to and being used in a positive way it it's like an oil spill in your brain which can cause all sorts of stuff from you know mood disorders and psychiatric issues and memory problems to psychoses and i was like yes this makes so much sense it all Uh, makes sense and and then and then learning about their protocol and and really how simple it is and how it just it's a lot of things like fish oil and Mm -hmm. things to promote uh holistically getting your body's uh hormone levels back 
in order and taking these using these anti-inflammatory foods which I had kind of already gone down that path but building on that and and how important that is and when you do these things and you get the hormones back in balance and you you get your body in a state where it's not constantly inflamed um, your brain can heal itself and then all the other things that branch out of their program from the psychedelics to the hyperbaric uh, treatment facilities Mm -hmm. that they're using and all these all these new options that are just not available when you go to the VA in most places that are just not even talked about And, and really all you're told is hey Take your drugs, and, and if you don't, if they're not working, just take more drugs. And maybe you need different drugs, and maybe you need combinations of drugs. And then before you know it, you're on this poly, polypharma situation, and, and and it's so inspiring to see that there's a different path. And and it's frustrating knowing that you know this stuff doesn't fit the business model that is in place, uh, and is in fact kind of a threat to the business model. Mm-hmm. Of, oh, it's a massive threat. Like, you know, what what happens when these people, you know, can go in and they can do these treatments and get better? Yeah. And and what happens when you can take somebody who's been told that they're they're permanently broken and they're going to just be on these drugs the rest of their life and it's a miserable existence and it's why you see, you know, what whatever the number is now, 22 veterans a day, four times the amount of people killing themselves in suicide than killed by combat and and just to know how broken that system is and and to know it's not working and then to see things like this emerging and how much pushback there is Mm -hmm. and how much suppression of it there is uh is frustrating but i feel that all the people that are at this event and the power of these people's messages like and, and people like you sharing this, you know, getting the word out there and talking about it and, and like that there's something else out there is going to give so many people hope. I know I know it has for me and I'm just kind of like getting into this, but I talk to people here that have been on these protocols and they've been getting, uh, you know, their labs done and their blood work done to see where they're deficient in hormones and they're getting on these better diets and they're exercising and they're getting the inflammation down and it is their brain is getting into a state where it can heal by itself. Mm -hmm. And these people are going from suicidal, abusing all sorts of drugs and alcohol and, and just a shell of who they once were as these elite warriors and performers in the military and leaders and, and being just degraded down to, dust of what they were and what they could be and being told that's just your new normal and that's how you're going to be and then seeing these guys and hearing their story like looking at them coming back and talking to them and now they are these like they are those guys again and not only are they the badass warriors that they were before they're even stronger and they're they have this new focus and this new mission and that is to help other people and and reintegrate society and you hear these guys saying like they're going back and they're getting their their master's degrees and their doctorates and they're starting their businesses and they're getting, you know, off the whole, like, just, I'm going to be, you know, disabled the rest of my life mindset and they're restarting their lives in a new direction is so awesome to see. And and it makes me hopeful. Like, what if this was what I got when I first went in after I started experiencing the, the brain injury stuff? What if, you know, this person who has millions of dollars, uh, invested in my training what if instead of the the route that i went with the pharmaceutical drugs and all of that and everything that came of it what if they had put me on this treatment protocol what if they said hey you have a brain injury 
let's fix that at a physiological level. And, and then seeing how these guys are, you know, what if they had gotten on it? There would be all these warriors back fighting. Mm-hmm. I could potentially be back flying fighter jets again with all the experience that I've had uh, to share and build off of. And, and you know, uh, obviously that door is kind of closed for me, but looking forward and the potential of this is pretty, pretty incredible. And, and I hope there's people out there listening that are in the Department of Defense and people in the higher levels of government going, okay, maybe we should give this stuff a look. Maybe we should try. And not only is it applicable to veterans, this is applicable to the health crisis that's plaguing our country and, and a lot of the world right now, like things can be done differently and, and, and they can be a hell of a lot better. And it threatens a business model and it threatens some financial interests that have a lot of sway, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people fighting now and there's a lot of people learning about this and, and uh, it's pretty eye opening. but, uh, yeah, thank you for having me on and talking to me and, of course. uh, and, and helping me share this. And, no, and, and I and we're more. You're more than welcome to come on any time. I know. Um, I know we're short time here because we have to go run again soon. But there, there definitely will be a, a round two with you because I feel like I have a million questions about where you're going, what yeah. it looks like, what you want to do, and you know where you take that experience that you've had because it's invaluable. You know, you only have a certain number of fighter pilots for a reason. There's it's just the same reason. There's only a certain number of rangers and seals and X, Y, and Z. You know this type of information this knowledge it needs to be passed down it's it should be passed down it it there should be a pathway to healing and that somebody asked me that question after i got hurt and they said do you think that if somebody who was educated sat you down and said listen this is what's going on with you we're aware of it you don't have to worry we're going to handle this properly do you think that you would have been okay and i think yeah i would have i think many of us would have i think if we were handled differently i think there would have been a a different uh, result but you know we we didn't have the best of outcomes but we know better now so we can do better we can teach better we can for we sure can, and I think that's um if anything that's come out of this is you know we've learned that there is a better way to healing it doesn't have to be pharmaceutical based and never did um, maybe at the beginning when we didn't know better but guess what we know better so when you know better you do better it's no different than a child they know better do better it's so the government should be doing just just the same yeah and the good thing is you know this organization isn't waiting for the government to fix things because Correct. as we all know, after working in the government, that's not the fastest process. And, and even no. with a lot of well-intended people, uh, you know, it's going to take time. And in the meantime, we're actively, you know, reaching out to people and helping them and, and, and helping change their lives, you know, yeah, bringing them out of that black box that they think they're trapped in, that they're just hopeless, you know, um, there's tons of hope. There's more hope than there's ever been. Yeah. And um, people know that they can reach out. And, and, you know, that's why we're here supporting the organizations. I mean, you've got SOA, you've got Nine Line, you've got um, Vet Solutions, you've got Heroic Hearts. I mean, you've got you've got a ton of different organizations here that are spearheading this movement in psychedelics mm-hmm. and, and healing and, and with Warrior Angel Foundation and, and um, Dr. Mark Gordon. So there's only going to be progression. I can't. I don't see the ball stopping. You can't turn off the tap now. You know, the secret's out. There's a way to get better and <laughs> it doesn't get it out. Yeah. Keep and it doesn't have to it. be Pfizer related. Like we can, <laughs> we can all get better. This is not a Pfizer addict. It's like the first, <laughs> but I think we can all get better and we can all do better. But, um, I appreciate you coming on and being vulnerable and telling us uh, a lot about your story because again, there's, uh, to see someone like you go through what you have and, and come back, not only come back swinging, come back flying again. And then, and then get knocked down and then find his way back. I mean, it's 
it's something that people should you know strive to admire be admired it's it's impressive well happy to be here it is and, uh, we're glad you are here really stoked to have some hope for the future you know for the first time in a while well, don't don't worry. We'll never let you forget that there's tons of it. All <laughs> oh, right, yeah. sweetheart. Well, thank you for coming. We'll make sure. Do you have, uh, what's your Instagram, any of those things? Uh, I have zero social media. Yes, I uh, love that. That's my first, that's my first, uh, yes. I'm on Strava. That's my only social yeah. media. And uh, my Fitness. name on there is K period. That's it. Uh, Did you take my, <laughs> that's mine on Signal. What's wrong with you? You've stolen it now. <laughs> Well, it's good because we're going to have you on again. We're going to talk about all things triathlons, uh, your you know, your fitness and all the um, sports that you do because I think uh, there's plenty of listeners that are going to want to pick your brain as well. So Hell yeah. Okay. Well, we'll be back. Everyone else, uh, we will talk to you all next week.